0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. It is Monday, and believe it or not, tomorrow is Election Day. Wow! I we're 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 joined again by our good friend David Byler, who is the uh, who was described on our Bulwark Podcast the other night as the king of the nerds. But you you seem to take that as a compliment, right, David?
1: Oh, it's it's an over generous compliment and definitely a compliment. Thank you.
0: Okay, so you're you're now with the Washington Post. You're a data a data analyst, and you've been running all these numbers. But you just said something to me. I I I asked you, are you like burned out? Are you tired of this now? And you said, no, you're you're as jazzed as you've ever been in the cycle. This yeah, we're it.
1: about to get results. This is this is great. We can finally actually see votes instead of just talking about votes. It's gonna be the best.
0: So here's 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 my feeling. I, I was I was listening to some of the other podcasts and people are you know getting very, very nervous and you know, talk about fetal crouches and I gotta tell you i don't i've I've been more relaxed about this election than I've been in a very long time in terms of being relatively confident about the results, but I will tell you I am way less confident about the aftermath of the results. That's what I wrote in my newsletter this morning that we're sort of at at the brink right now it It feels like you know it's i mean look a lot of the worst case scenarios may not take place, bad things may not happen it may be y two k all over again. But you know, w- when you go to bed at night, reading about the White House on lockdown—that that, that, that beginning today, Cruz will be building a non-scalable fence to secure the White House complex—and you have the president out there tweeting his support for this really disturbing, uh, car, you know, truck parade that uh, that surrounded a Biden bus over the weekend. It, 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 the potential for chaos is tremendous and you have the president out there uh suggesting that he's going to call on the lawyers to stop counting the ballots on on tuesday night which of course won't succeed but i think it's an indication of of chaos so like you're a very orderly guy and you're talking about counting the the numbers but i mean how, how are you feeling about this right now
1: right so i'm kind of thinking of this in two buckets right so in the first bucket is all the stuff where all my stats and all my math and all of the, you know, things that I do with my time actually function and work and are interesting. And in that bucket, what we see is, you know, uh, what everyone's talking about, a sizable Joe Biden advantage that's bigger than what Hillary Clinton had in the year 2016, but that is still not safe from a systematic polling. error. Right. Yeah. The second bucket is the things where empiricism simply doesn't work. It's the stuff where there are no really good precedents. And we're kind of stepping out into darkness, right? Like the whole scientific enterprise, wherever it is, is, is premised on the idea of repeatability. We don't have repeatability for a Trump re-election. This is this is the first time anyone in history has tried it. So I, you know, like you, am hoping that it's, you know, Y2K all over again, but also kind of realizing the the limits of my own knowledge and thinking to myself like, okay, whatever probability estimate I have, I know I can't model court fight, you know.
0: Right. Well that I mean that that is the 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 own the known unknowns. So over the weekend we got that report from Axios. I guess the president's denying it right now, but it seems to be plausible that that, that uh, Trump was planning to declare victory tomorrow night if it looks like he's ahead in some of the early counts, which is certainly plausible that he's going to be ahead in these early mm-hmm. counts. Uh that you know, for this to happen, he would need to either win or have commanding leads in Ohio, Florida, North Carolina, Texas, Iowa, Arizona, and Georgia. And of course, you know, one of the big questions is, you know, whether or not we're going to be getting the uh, the same day votes first, which, which seem to be likely to favor Trump. And of course, then he declares victory and then suggests that that all of the counting of the mail-in votes of the absentee votes is somehow somehow constitutes stealing so that's that's chaos it probably won't affect the the outcome of it but these are the things I'm thinking about I mean I know you're thinking about the the, mm-hmm. the data also I, I I'm really pu- puzzled by a couple of things And I'm just throwing this up before we get to your data stuff okay we'll get to your sure. data so the, all, all, all the Trump folks that were blocking the highways and the bridges and stuff around in new york i i guess it escapes me what the electoral appeal of that is that that there's sort of this and david i'm not putting words in your mouth because you would never say this just struck me as performative assholery it's just like they 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 have time to kill and let's be disruptive and you kind of wonder whether or not that's just blowing off steam or that's an indication of the hellscape that's about to happen that people are just going to act out in in this in this chaos and this again this does not necessarily go to the question of what the polls are telling us or what the results are going to be but it is interesting that that all around the country we're seeing stores boarding up their windows you have a large number of people in this country who will be absolutely shocked by whatever the result is because i, I think there was a poll in wisconsin last week that showed that 80 percent of the trump supporters are absolutely convinced that trump will win and will win easily which is not what the other polls are are telling us at at all. So we have that. So let me, let me play a little bit of soundbite. Um, I've been saying for some time that Trump is saving the the worst for the last. Apparently, his closing argument uh, as the pandemic is raging across the country in places like my home state of Wisconsin, where we're getting close to a hundred thousand new cases a day, going into the flu season. And last night, he suggested that one of the first things he might do after the election is fire Dr. Anthony Fauci. Let's play that. Don't tell anybody, but let me wait till a little bit after the election, yeah. don't don't, don't tell him. I'm not sure he can fire Fauci. Do, do you know? Like, he can't actually fire him, can he?
1: I don't I, know whether he I, can I, fire Fauci. I, I That's, that, it's, it's, it's a wild message to have right before the election that like, yeah, you know, this figure who has, you know, risen to, you know, great, you know, knowledge amongst the public. People know who he is. People trust him. People in general trust, you know, various scientists and, you know two days before the election or whatever, you have a fire a Fauci chant. It, it's wild. Yeah, yeah.
0: It, it, it is wild. And yeah, over, over the weekend, I wasn't going to bring this up. But so Scott Atlas is his new guy. He's the guy from the Hoover Institution who, who's not an epidemiologist at all, but has been been essentially feeding Trump this, you know, don't worry about it. It's all about the testing and your herd immunity and all of this, that kind of bullshit. Um, a, over the weekend, he gave an interview to RT, Russia Today, which is actually sort of a, a propaganda arm of, of, of Vladimir Putin. And, and everybody's going, whoa, whoa. So Donald Trump's favorite guy is on RT. And then Atlas puts out a tweet apologizing, saying he had no idea. He had really no idea who these guys were. He was taken advantage of. He works for the White House. He's got access to Google. All you do is you Google it. It is just so lame. OK, so one other big question that I have, and not necessarily for you, but it's in the back of my mind. Is is as we go into this potentially chaotic period, what will other Republicans do? Will they tell the president, no, you you can't question the results in this particular way? Um, this is a bad look. The Republican Party being all in on voter suppression, going into the Texas courts and trying to have them throw out hundred thousand ballots is just a bad thing, or engaging in the kind of voter intimidation that you saw, the you know, the vigilanteism and the voter intimidation that you saw down in Texas. Um, anybody that's hoping that that people like Marco Rubio will be the conscience of the Republican Party this is this is little Marco yesterday at uh, Trump rally down in Florida look at this crowd in a few minutes in a few minutes right before you will be the president of the United States now he has been to a lot of great rallies we've seen him right on television but there's no rally like a Florida rally Listen, I saw yesterday a video of these people in Texas. Did you see it? All the cars on the road with the We love what they did, but here's the thing they don't know. We do that in Florida every day. Oh, oh great. I love seeing the boat parade. You've seen the boat parades? Yeah, by the way, the FBI is, of course, investigating uh, that particular incident where uh, one of the Trump trucks uh, smashed into uh, another car. But uh, so, uh, Marco, rather than saying, hey, guys, we ought to lower the temperature, we ought to treat each other as, uh, as Americans and as Christians. He's like, we love this. We do it more even more. So, uh, David, do you have any like uh, data on um, to quantify the impact of boat parades on American
1: election? (laughs) Boat parades are not a traditional indicator, believe it or not, Charlie. They're they're not generally used in election forecasting, along with, you know, yard sides and tweet volume. It's it's generally not a traditional metric. All
0: right. So what people want to know is you've been crunching these numbers. You've been running all of these scenarios. Uh, I, I I watched you the other night on the on the bulwark live stream and you were you seemed very confident what the result of this election will be. Where are you right now we're talking Monday morning before the election what is what is your model telling you is going to happen?
1: Right so a couple things. The first is that this election is fundamentally different from 2016 in that there are fewer undecideds. the race has been more stable. Biden's lead has been larger than Clinton's lead has been in both key swing states and nationally. So, we're in a situation where if you're, you know, laying odds or you're trading unpredicted or whatever it is, and you're thinking in those probabilistic terms, Joe Biden is a better bet than Hillary Clinton in uh, 2016. So, this, there, is, there are fundamental differences between what we're looking at now and what we looked at four years ago. There is still a chance that Donald Trump could win the presidential election through a systematic polling error. One thing that has been interesting from other analysts like Dave Washerman and Sean Trendy is the idea that pollsters have not completely worked out all the bugs in the Midwest, in Florida, and that uh, what we may have is some persistence of polling errors. So if that happens, it is possible that Trump wins. Different uh, forecasting sites and forecasting methods Uh, have different odds for this. I think The Economist had it at 5%. I think uh, 538 had it at 10%. My own just for fun kind of interesting model is is currently running right now um, that is typically somewhere between those two. Uh, You cannot round 5% and 10% down to zero. Uh, There is still a chance that Trump wins uh, and that all the polls are off again and that history just kind of repeats. Uh, But at the same time, there are just as many good arguments for the polls underestimating Biden as there are for them underestimating Trump. So that's why you get sort of the situation we're at where Biden is a significant favorite, but it's not over until the votes are counted. We're in an era of close elections. And then the last thing I'll I'll say is that uh, what you've seen is a little bit of a divergence where the chance of Trump winning in the popular vote has been plummeting, plummeting, plummeting. But he still maintains his chance. Uh, mostly via the Electoral College. Uh, so if Trump wins, there is a very good chance that he again loses the popular vote while doing so.
0: OK, so what what do you, you put it at? I, I heard you say 7% the other night. Are you still at yeah. 7% chance? OK, yeah. so there's that 93 out of 100 chance that Joe Biden wins this. I'm I'm, by the way, have this 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 mental image of of all of you data guys having like electrodes attached to you that that you you have to say, you know, he can win, he can win, he can win. It's like it's like everybody. It's it's like all at once. Everybody started tweeting and writing about it. You know, he he really could do this at the same time. You have models out showing 90, 91, 92, 93 percent chance that it's going to be Biden. So systematic polling error means everybody is wrong everywhere at the same time. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, that's what yeah. I mean. It means that that all the multiple polls in Florida are wrong. Arizona is wrong. Every, every you know, uh, Wisconsin is wrong. Michigan is wrong. Pennsylvania is, is is wrong. That no one with all of these pollsters out doing this um, were able to pick up on this with the exception of some of the partisan polls. So, so systematic, you know, means that we fundamentally do not understand what's going on in American politics. But there have been broke- you know things that have broken down so so tell me about how you put your model together um you run simulations right you run like mm-hmm. based on the numbers, ten thousand simulations, and it, how, how many times does Trump win
1: so it would be seven yeah. percent of the time right yeah, 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 so like seven- I'm doing this bath in my head like seven hundred ish would be the amount that Trump would win yeah. for. 7- 7%. Anyways, um, yeah. So essentially the way you put it together is you look at past elections, uh, you grab tons of different data from those past elections, and you see what predicts what with how much certainty when, right? So for example, you could say, okay, a roughly seven point lead in the polls is worth a lot more 10 days out, then it's worth 100 days out. You I see thought that what,
0: was very interesting. I heard you say that the other night. I thought that was really interesting.
1: Thanks. Yeah, yeah. And so you sort of put these things together. Uh, the one that I've had in various columns and that I've tweeted about at various points that I've just kind of been messing with um, is one where it has tightening sort of built in in the early phase. It discounts early leads and says, OK, partisans are generally going to come home. Other ones like 538 and The Economist use uh, economic data and use other data sources. You try to estimate how uncertain you are, right? You say that in a race where there is less polling or in a race where there are more undecided voters or where in a state where third party uh, candidates have a lot of the vote, you sort of widen out your error bands because there's poor chance of things being wrong. And you simulate with correlated errors. And what that means is exactly what you were talking about a minute ago, which is that if if pollsters get it wrong in one state, if they get it wrong in Wisconsin for some reason, there's a pretty good chance that the same mistakes are hurting them in Michigan, and the same mistakes are hurting them in Minnesota, and the same mistakes are hurting them in Ohio. Um, you know, maybe less so in California, which is pretty democrat or demographically different than all those states. But you do have some of that correlation in there. So you look at that, you run it, however many tens of thousands of times, and you get the estimates that. You see at your 538s, at your economists, at your you know various things that I push out every once and again, and that's kind of how you get the probability estimates, and then uh, you know all the other yeah. stuff you build in the model comes out from there. Yeah. Okay,
0: so you know when when we're looking at these states, and I was I, I've been playing around with the the 270 maps and everything. Uh, The one thing that really strikes me, but I I also felt this way four years ago, is is really how difficult it is right now for Donald Trump to get to 270. So it it, it is quite possible for him to for Donald Trump to win, uh, to win Florida early tomorrow night um, and still go on to losing rather substantially in the Electoral College. He he really has to run the table. So, I mean, is. Is, is, is there is there one state that you think is right now is the tipping point state?
1: If I had to pick, I'd pick Pennsylvania. Yeah, uh, I the frustrating was. thing. Yeah. The frustrating thing about Pennsylvania, though, is that they may or end up having a relatively slow count compared to some of the other states. So I think Florida gets a lot of the attention because it's supposed to have a faster count. And it's one of those states that's necessary but not sufficient, probably, for a Trump win. Right. If he doesn't win Florida, I am not sure what the map looks like. It'd have to be pretty creatively drawn for Trump to win without winning the state of Florida. If he wins the state of Florida, he doesn't win it automatically, but he's kind of still in the game. I think that's, that's part of the reason why it's gotten the attention it has.
0: Okay, so you know w- one of the things that I'm thinking through is is, is how we 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 watch this tomorrow night, and, and we know that some of these states might be somewhat slow. Uh, Wisconsin, by the way, has a way of counting that will make it look like Trump is ahead early in the night, but then it will uh, it will probably evaporate as time goes on. But some of these states count quickly, and we know we're going to get a lot of those numbers uh, tomorrow night, de- definitively. And Florida is one of those states, so. Uh, if 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 we see if we see Donald Trump, if we see Biden winning in Florida and Georgia, I think we're reasonably confident that this race is pretty much
1: over. Do you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. It's hard for me to think of a scenario where Florida and Georgia go blue and Trump still wins. That's that'd be pretty, pretty wild.
0: So part of this is the psychology. So I started off by with that Axios story that uh, Trump is going to declare victory on election night. The only way he can do that is is if is if these these results are far more ambiguous uh, or if they're very very skewed. I think so. The, 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 there's a psychological significance to Florida that's really outside. I mean, it, it's a big deal. Florida's always a big deal, um, but. Biden winning Florida strikes me as a really big deal tomorrow night for the reasons that you just stated.
1: Yeah, if Biden wins Florida, that's a really big deal. I'd be interested to see sort of what the you know conditional probabilities are on some of these other uh, systems that actually look at vote totals and vote counts and that sort of thing. Um, Yeah, if Biden wins Florida, it means a couple things. It means that. Trump's resilience with Hispanic and Latino voters was not enough for him to carry the most important state uh, where that's a significant, you know, large part of the population. Uh, It means that Biden's edge with older voters probably has worked out in his favor, which is a good sign for him in places like Arizona. And it probably means that there is that some of that erosion for Trump with white non-college-educated voters, some of his uh, losses with suburbanites, that that's sustained. I mean, in a lot of ways, Florida is a mini America where you're going to be able to pull out a lot of the different trends and see what's happening where. So it's it's hard to overstate Uh, in terms of the states that we might get In a reasonable decent amount of time i would say florida is the more important one
0: so you mentioned a number of these demographic groups and and one of the most interesting stories out of florida not the most interesting story of course was the is the relative uh, weakness of joe biden among uh, latino voters in part that's because of the large cuban population but there mm-hmm. does it does seem to be a theme that the Trump is doing better with Hispanic voters than one would have expected. And that, that has implications throughout the, the, the Sun Belt. What are you seeing?
1: Right. So it's an interesting thing. Like you said, country of origin is an important sort of demographic breakdown within Hispanic and Latino voters. So uh, Cuban-American versus, say, Mexican-American has significance for voting patterns. Um, I'm seeing that it that kind of a lot of the democratic or demographic splits that matter just generally in the electorate tend to matter uh, within Hispanic and Latino voting patterns. Gender matters. Right. Uh, Religious affiliation matters. Um, Age matters. So you have some of those same cleavages sort of happening and coming out. Um, I think that it's probably a good sign for Trump that he's doing as well as he is in Florida. I think that this doesn't extend to sort of everywhere. Texas is still competitive despite Trump, you know, sort of maybe gaining a little ground, maybe not losing as much as people thought. Uh, Arizona is still a place that Biden has an advantage, despite you know uh, much discussed Hispanic and Latino sort of uh, resilience. So I, that's all to say that I wouldn't overstate it. I think a little bit in the search for bright spots for trump we've kind of zeroed in on this thing and a little bit maybe overemphasized it
0: okay that 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 is an interesting point because the other demographic um Phenomenon that we're going to see in Florida, sort of writ large, will be the the shift of senior citizens, which I have to tell mm-hmm. you, I find to be really extraordinary. Um, this was something this, this was a this was a cohort that the Trump had won four years ago, but there are some surveys; they don't all say the same thing. There seems to be a little bit of a disagreement among some of the surveys, but there seems to be a general consensus that senior citizens have really soured on Trump, and if there's one group that um, that you want to circle because they they vote, they vote in big numbers, they vote in reliable numbers, and they vote in big numbers in swing states, it would be senior citizens. So what are you seeing there?
1: Right. So like you're saying, there's a sort of Biden resurgence amongst uh, voters in older demographics, especially senior citizens. There's almost a uh, weird U or sort of like dipper shape on uh, the age gradient in America where Younger voters are very Democratic. And then, sort of, when you get to more middle aged voters, you get more Republican. And then you uh, sort of dip back upwards into Democratic territory with seniors. I wonder a little bit about why this happens. I think some of it might be particular life experience with uh, Hillary Clinton. I think that she's a singular political figure. And, you know, uh, a lot of people didn't see Joe Biden the same way as they saw her. Uh, I think some of it people have uh, said might be COVID exposure, that seniors, just, you know, because of how the virus works, are unfortunately uh, in more danger than other demographic groups because of virus and that that might be part of the, the voting behavior. Um, it's honestly, uh, it's you know, possible that Biden himself, you know, with his sort of throwback to uh, the 80s compromise era politics, sort of really, you know, trying to carry that ambiance around with him wherever he goes, that that helps. Uh, but you know it's it's just a, it's kind of a wild demographic pattern that i think helps in florida helps in arizona but really people of all ages live everywhere so this is going to have ripple effects in a lot of places if biden is able to hold up this edge with seniors
0: yeah but but see, every, every single senior citizen from wisconsin lives now in florida and arizona so, the, so there is a, a consequence that's a slight exaggeration i, I understand that do you, do you play with the maps by the way do you, you do the 270 thing
1: right with, oh with, because Sometimes, sometimes I uh, do the two seventy map. Sometimes yeah. I just kind of do it in my head. Sometimes I do my own model stuff. Yeah,
0: oh, you do it in your head. You're like you're 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 like the kid who plays chess in their head, right? <laughs> in, the, in the in the queen's gambit. Well, because I'm, I'm 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 was playing around with it this morning, and I didn't give Trump Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, or Arizona, and he still won. So I mean, this is this is where this is where we are at right now this is how difficult right. it is it is for for Donald Trump to pull this off of course um, there it, you, you can't emphasize enough that this this election though is not like any other election including the early votes and the mail-in votes do you read i mean how do you factor in this massive early vote in places like Texas i mean what what are we seeing here i mean i see a lot of people who are trying to read the tea leaves and trying to assume that it means this or that. What are you seeing, you know, particularly in places right. like Texas? I mean, these these votes were. there are more people who've already voted than actually voted in the whole election of
1: 2016, which, of course, we've never
0: seen anything
1: remotely like this before. Right. I have sort of a couple thoughts on that. The first is that just from a pure historical span, standard, early voting has not been a great predictor yeah. of, uh, you know, the partisan breakdown of things. Oftentimes, it cannibalizes the election day vote. You know, not every new voter is a voter who has never voted before and is then, you know, suddenly going to vote Democratic. Uh, there's a significant pool of sort of sometimes voters who vote periodically uh, or who maybe like just left the top of the ticket blank last time. There's, there's a lot of complications around trying to infer what the partisanship of a place is uh, from their sort of early vote. Uh, a lot of times also survey researchers attempt, and you know, this is, this is not always successful. It's, it varies from place to place and year to year, um, but they attempt to sort of pick up new voters. They have self-reported uh, sort of likelihood of voting as part of their likely voter screen. So you you have attempts to sort of catch onto the enthusiasm. If it's a high turnout, I was saying this on the live stream, uh, Patrick Murray from Monmouth is going to, you know, well, he's already really smart, but he's going to look like a total genius for doing that thing he does where he has registered voters, high turnout, low turnout in his polls because that, you know, that's big is trying to estimate where the turnout is. but. You know, I I think that the rule of history sort of works for me, which is that I'm not going to touch that until afterwards and seeing what it, what it looks like. And, and it, it is really notable, though. It really looks like we're going to have a massive turnout election. Uh, and the, the last thing I'll say about it is that if turnout shoots up in Texas, but Trump still wins it and turnout does not shoot up in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is still the tipping point state, right? Like, it's, it's important right. to track where these surges in turnout are because the electoral college is the thing that matters the most as we all learned four years ago
0: okay so there, there's massive turnout in places like texas but um, not in pennsylvania in fact pennsylvania seem to be you know lagging way behind is it is it just a different culture is it a different system in terms of the mail-in voting what what is, what is the big difference between early voting in texas and in pennsylvania
1: Well, Pennsylvania, uh, to my knowledge, is a little bit newer to some of these things than other states. They're having to sort of figure out a new system of, uh, you know, early voting, sort of all forms of remote voting, that kind of thing. Uh, Texas also is a, uh, you know, low turnout state in general. So they've got a lot, lot, lot of room to increase and room to grow. Um, So, you know, I think that we'll... I I do want to wait a little bit because it's possible that Pennsylvania turnout ends up being really high and a lot of it's just on election day. No. Yeah.
0: So you wrote an interesting piece and that now we're sort of like looking past the election here. Um, And and you wrote this uh, yesterday or the day before. If. And it's a huge if the polls are right. Uh, Joe Biden is about to post the largest popular vote victory in the six presidential elections held in the 21st century. There are plenty of obvious explanations for his lead, uh, which we go through. Um, But you also point out that Biden is also the first candidate to follow the electoral formula laid out in the emerging Democratic majority, which was a 2002 book that promised Democrats a route to enduring dominance of American politics. And you say, still, Democrats burned out on the Trump year shouldn't get too excited. If Biden is the first emerging Democratic majority candidate, he's also likely to be the last. Tell me about that. So what what is the emerging Democratic majority candidate? Let's start there.
1: Yeah, the emerging Democratic majority candidate. I, I just I think this is so interesting because this this book from 2002 started off such a you know multi-year, multi-decade, wide-ranging debate. So the argument of the book is that in 2002, America is transitioning into a post-industrial society. You know, you have more women working, you have more knowledge workers, you have sort of giant cities springing up everywhere you have this massive societal shift into just a new modern era. And so the argument of the book is that Democrats are sort of poised to take advantage of that, that if they uh, hew to what the authors call progressive centrism, which is you know not going the furthest left possible route, but being economically liberal, being socially liberal, that you could build an enduring uh, majority based on essentially the Democratic base at that time, which did include a lot of white working class voters, we'll come back to that later, but also sort of capitalized on these growing groups, capitalized on the Hispanic and Latino vote, which Democrats tend to win, on you know working women, knowledge industry professionals, et cetera. So the emerging Democratic uh, majority candidate is someone who can keep that base, capitalize on those growing groups, and you know car- some, kind of carve out that progressive centrist ideology as they term it.
0: Yes. And so why would Joe Biden be the last one to be able to do this?
1: Right. So a couple reasons. Uh, it's, it's interesting because Joe Biden also looks like he might be the first one to be able to do this. Obama and Clinton, uh, they both had some significant differences, you know, really with their their loss of white working class voters that uh, sort of kept them away from the book formula. Uh, but Joe Biden might be the last one to be able to do this for a few reasons. One is that if you look at the 2020 Democratic primary, a lot of of, you know, sort of his successors or his possible successors, most notably Kamala Harris, uh, seems like they're not on board with the uh, sort of medium progressive bent. Right. Uh, they don't really want to, you know, necessarily accommodate uh, some of them are, you know, like Bernie Sanders, a self-described democratic socialist. Yeah. Uh, you have a lot of people who just are not on board with the formula as prescribed. Uh, another reason is that you know, getting into a little bit of the the sort of higher theory of the book is very briefly. We're eighteen years into the transition that Teshara and Judas described in their yeah. book. You know, we've got other problems, other stuffs happening now that was not you know foreseeable in two thousand two. to anybody anywhere, right? Um, and then the third thing would be is that parties tend to find sort of that hole in the Death Star of the other party. Um, these eras of dominance tend to end pretty quickly. And to the author's credit, they said like, "Hey, if you follow this formula, you're still going to lose some time, but you're going to set the conversation and be generally dominant." So to their credit, they you know had that right. It's sort of the popularizers who had it a little bit wrong, I think. Um, and so a sense, yeah, yeah. The, there's there's always way. Clinton found a way out of Reaganism. You know, uh, Obama found a, a way out of like the Bush era, and Trump found a way out of the Obama era. These things just change. You find weaknesses the other time. Well, you, you, you,
0: yes, that's that's true. We're not we're not going to have a, a the the kind of thing that happened in nineteen thirty two, which you know ushered in twenty consecutive years of Democratic dominance. Actually, even more more than that, uh, because things do move. On the other hand, you know we've we've talked about it. We've been waiting for this demographic time bomb for the Republicans that they talked about after the twenty twelve election in their autopsy. That uh, that you do have, um, you know, the the number of you know Hispanic Americans. Um, well, let me put it this way: that if the Republican Party loses young people, if it loses women, if it loses Hispanics, if it loses African Americans, if they are aroused, um, if uh, if they lose Asian Americans, then. That They are facing a demographic tsunami that that really will make it difficult for them to win a national election. And if tomorrow we're getting ahead of ourselves, if Joe Biden wins in places like Georgia and Arizona and if he were to pull off Texas, I mean, this would be a cataclysmic change. This would be a generational shift for the Republican Party. And I guess the question, which is above our pay grade, is whether or not the Republicans have the whether they have the ability to find the hole in the Deaf Star if they become so wedded to the kind of identity politics, the kind of Trumpian anti-immigration, um, hyper-nationalist uh, uh, policies and and, and style uh, that Donald Trump has brought. I mean, if if that is if that's what it takes to get the nomination in the future, then it's going to be very difficult for them to break that. I mean, that is going to be one of those moments where if you lose Texas or you lose you know Texas and Arizona then the Republican Party will wake up on Wednesday in a whole new world, won't they?
1: Yeah, well, to me, this is what you're talking about right now is an area where Trump himself actually matters a lot and his specific decisions matter a lot because if Trump, you know, were a normal president, he would ride off into the sunset. You know, George W. Bush had a pretty terrible approval rating. He was radioactive uh, at the end of the 2008 election he just left. And that allowed Republicans to win in 2010 because they weren't tied to him because he wasn't around and nobody was talking about him. There is no guarantee that Trump does the same thing. JVL on your side, I think, made this argument sort of better than anybody else uh, when he was saying that Trump is forever. If Trump just decides to stick around, that really limits uh, the ability that Republicans have to creatively sort of work within these things. I mean, I think some amount of you know, populism, whether it's stylistic or economic, is probably just part of the Republicans' party's future, for better or worse. I think that's probably part of how they make their next majority. It's going to be a lot easier for them to sort of fiddle with it and figure out the right mix and figure out what to jettison from the Trump era and what to sort of maybe symbolically keep if Trump is around weighing in every single day on Twitter. So this is an area where I think that the, the specific actions of a person we're going to like move the needle on how this plays out historically, which is kind of wild.
0: No. And, and I, I think that sometimes these hangovers last a lot longer than we sometimes think. Um, you know, I've argued that you would never have had Donald Trump in 2016 if you didn't have what happened with Bill Clinton back in the 1990s. Um, I remember voters in the 60s and the 70s casting votes based on their support for Franklin Roosevelt's policies in the 1930s. So it's certainly possible that, you know, 20, 30 years from now, you're still going to be feeling the echoes of what's happening right now. And if Donald Trump does stick around, it, 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 it means that 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 mark on the Republican Party becomes, you know, of longer duration and more indelible. I also think that there's a there's a related phenomenon to that, which is not just what Donald Trump and his family do. It's the way the entire right has been transformed. It is mm. the way in which conservative media has become um, more tribalized, uh, more. um uh, you know, more addicted to the politics of, of outrage. The, 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 the media, the conservative media has been thoroughly Trumpified, but also has has kind of expanded its own diversity in terms of, of, of willingness to, you know, be out there in the fever swamps. I didn't, I didn't put that quite well, but that's not going away. I mean you're still mm-hmm. going to have the the OANs, you're still going to have the Fox News, you're going to still have the Don Bonginos, you're still going to have, you know, the the folks that that have embraced Trumpian style politics and I think that's going to make it harder for uh Republicans who want to make a pivot. I I'm, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of who would mo- be most likely to be able to go into the death star, this demographic death star and and break it unless unless they were willing to break pretty fundamentally from a lot of the things that Republicans are embracing and going along with right now.
1: Right. I, I think you're totally right. The strategy has not been invented yet. Whatever whatever way it is to sort of, you know, kind of thread the needle and keep the base on board while actually expanding appeal and everything like that, um, you know, I, I think that that is something that is just, it's, yeah, it's not been invented yet. The thing that I would say is that there's always two actors in this, right? So I don't think Donald Trump would have won the 2016 election if Democrats had fielded a candidate that was better liked, right? Both right. Trump and Clinton were historically disliked if somebody else had made it out of the primary. like I, th- I think President Gillibrand in 2016 would have been a totally you know, like thinkable thing. I'm just thinking yeah. of the person who is you know, the most like Hillary Clinton without having so much, you know, history with, with (laughs) right. Um, So, you know, and so, so the other half of this is, okay, you know, not just what do Republicans do to sort of, you know, figure out how to manage the coalition and sort of the aftermath of everything that's happened. It's also, what is it that happens with Democrats? Do they overread their mandate? Do they go like full bore left on everything cultural and economic? You know, it's it's, That's that's the other side of this equation that I think matters a lot.
0: No, I think that that is a great point, because clearly a lot of Republicans that I've talked to think that, okay, it's it's it is bad. But the Republican Party will heal itself because it will be in opposition to a Democratic Party that will make itself toxic, who will go too far, will will mistake the this election for ratification of wokeness of uh of of pushing everything to the left. So I could cer- I could certainly see I could certainly see that that happening and again it's things also move at a at a different rate. But again going back to this just the 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 demographics. I I do wonder whether or not um well you know I don't I don't want to get too far ahead of you know what what happens if you know if when because I don't know what's going to happen in Texas. I have no idea. But on on the early voting One of the things that really strikes me about this year has been how overt Republicans have been about being the party of voter suppression. Now, that's painful for me to say, because I've spent years pushing back on the criticism, you know, saying, hey, being concerned about voter fraud does not mean you want to be in favor of voter suppression thinking you should have a voter ID is not really some sort of a way to keep people from voting it's a way to make sure that you have ballot integrity but this year it's like the mask is like ripped off and we're in every single state where you're seeing Republicans go to court it is to make it harder to vote make it more likely that people's votes will not be counted and actually disenfranchise people and this in itself appears to be a phenomenon in the election inspiring the backlash. And I think that this is going to be another one of these issues we'll look back on and go, boy, this was a terrible strategic mistake on the part of the Republicans, Um, because what you're seeing in Georgia and Texas may in fact be a voter revolution. I mean, we may see, you know, this this dramatic uprising of people who say you are trying to stop me from voting or my vote from being counted and screw you. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that will be one of the
1: one of the more compelling stories after the election. Yeah, I think that there's kind of two. I've kind of two thoughts on this. One is that it is possible. And, you know, always all the asterisks and caveats because yeah, yeah. Trump really could win. It is possible that the last that part of the lasting legacy of Donald Trump is a Democratic wave that allows Joe Biden and, you know, sort of the Democratic Party writ large to legislate. A whole bunch of things that they want yes. uh, for it to be kind of like the period from 2008 to 2010 again, uh, where you get massive changes sort of in the law. One other thing that I think is interesting just on this topic, it was a few months ago, and I don't remember everything about it, so I don't want to, you know, cite it or whatever. Uh, Dave Hopkins, he is a blogger who writes something called Honest Craft. And if I remember it correctly, and again, apologies to Dave if I'm getting this wrong. Um, he was talking about how Trump is sort of the end of confident conservatism, where in previous eras, a lot of Republicans were sort of certain that they were in the majority. Right. Uh, you had the idea that, you know, you you were the majority of the population. They agreed with you. America is a center right country, etc. cetera. And, you know, all of Trump's bravado, I think, sometimes masks the fact that it's a very unconfident Republican Party now. It's one that thinks. Oh if the electorate expands we're going to have trouble. Oh if a lot of people vote we're going to have trouble. Oh let's try to like demoralize and decrease turnout yeah. and you know it's, it's it's that sort of thing beneath the surface feels big for all the efforts and all the things that you're talking
0: about. I think that's a great point and you you put it better than I did. It it, it does exude lack of confidence when you've internalized the idea that if a lot of people voted, you'd never win an election again. I mean, that's really, that Mm -hmm. is not a, that is not a great look. It is not a great feel. So um, have you made predictions for tomorrow in terms of the electoral college?
1: No, I don't know. uh, I mean, if, if I had, I I like ranges more than um, numbers. I think the, I think the most likely result is Biden is somewhere in like the, mid 300s but again the range on this is wide. he has genuine blowout potential into the 400s you like it really really does and then there's also back into the 200s where kind of, you know kind of makes it through in the electoral college so got a wide band but i think you know the likeliest outcome within that wide band is probably mid 300s if i had to put it
0: Wow. Okay. So, uh, Tim Miller, uh, came up with his final predictions yesterday in, 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 his newsletter. And then I came up with sort of tentative numbers today. And, um, I was much, much more conservative than he was, which is amazing because I have been much more optimistic. He's, he tends to be kind of our, one of our, our local eors, And he, he has Biden at 350, um, Trump, uh, uh, well, th- or th- three, 350 three fifty, And he, he gives, he gives Trump. He, he gives Trump. I'm sorry. He gives Biden, Florida and Georgia and Arizona and North Carolina, um, which I do not. Uh, so I actually gave watch. Well, I gave, I gave uh, Trump Florida. Um, I said that Arizona was too close to call North Carolina, too close to call. I did give uh, Biden Uh, Georgia, and that gives him 294 electoral votes. So you're right. There's tremendous upside for, uh, for, for Joe Biden. So Tim Miller is at 350. I'm at 294, willing to adjust that up. We could, of course, be completely wrong because we have a lot of experience being completely wrong about these these things. David Byler, thanks so much for spending so much time with us and going so deep into all of this. It's, we're all going to be so much smarter a week from now, aren't we?
1: <laughs> it's impossible to, to get the election wrong once it's happened. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun
0: no i mean and especially because we will know things like what did early voting actually mean what did it not mean um what were these demographic changes which which were the big shifts um that, that made the difference so we'll know all of that stuff and of course we'll also know um whether the polls got it right this time by the way i just need to remind people of this because i there there is almost like an urban myth out there that the polls were completely wrong in 2016 it, there were some state polls that missed but Overall, the national polls got it almost exactly right, didn't they?
1: Yeah, that's one thing about 2016 is the national polls got it right. Some of the the state polls got it wrong where it mattered, and you know who knows if it's going to happen again or if something completely different is going to happen. All right,
0: David Byler, thank you so much for joining me. David Byler's stuff you can find it at the Washington Post. Uh, Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow which is November 3rd, 2020. It is finally here. Tomorrow is election day.